As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Already Friends. This is Kara. And this is Allison. Before we jump into today's episode, just to give you a heads up, this is our conversation with Dr. Chelsea Shields, and it was so good, so valuable that we decided to break it up into two parts. So this is going to be part one and part two will be out next week. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Today, we are having on a very special guest to talk about the eight dimensions of wellness, specifically social wellness. As you guys know, this is an ongoing series that we've been doing, and we are so excited to have Dr. Chelsea Shields on. She is super legit, guys, and this conversation is crazy. I'm going to save all the details for in a little bit, but just hearing how much your social wellness goes further than making friends, it's literally one of the silent killers in America is just like the loneliness epidemic, and you're going to hear all about that. But yeah, my mind was blown. And if you're not prioritizing your social wellness, this conversation will convince you to do so. Yes, we are so lucky to have Dr. Chelsea Shields on today. But as always, first we'll catch up, share our peaks of the week, read your guys's, and then we'll hop into it. Okay, Allison, give us a little California update. Tell us what you're up to. California update. Okay, so I went to LA I mean, this region is just so amazing. You guys know I've been staying in the Joshua Tree area. That's like where our quote unquote home base is that we got our extended Airbnb at. And I'm just continually mind blown that from here, I can go to Palm Springs in an hour and have like this artsy, fun, mid-century modern tank top type of day, go around and look at architecture. Another hour in a different direction, I can go to Big Bear and literally go snowboarding. There's so much snow there. It's like a full mountain town, literally like Vail. And then two hours the other direction, you can go to LA. So if you're ever thinking about doing an extended stay somewhere where you like want to be able to do a lot of different types of mini day trips, could not recommend this area enough. So yes, me and my mom went to LA because she had never been before. And this is so tragic. So I, I've been quite a few times, so I was pretty open and like didn't care what we did that day. But since she hadn't been, she didn't really know what even she wanted to do, wasn't that familiar with it. And she was like, okay, my only special request, I want to see the Hollywood sign. And I was like, honestly, that's perfect. Like, I've never seen it either. Like, I don't know how. And our initial plan was to go hike up there. We're like, perfect. It'll be a Saturday. We'll go hike and then we'll go get a cute brunch. Well, we woke up that day and it was like torrentially storming everywhere, like here in LA. And we were like, should we still go? And I was like, yes, let's just go. We'll do some vintage shopping. We can go see the Hollywood sign like from the car. We'll hit a few cute shops. So I made us like a whole itinerary, which if you guys want it, and you ever happen to be in LA on a rainy day. I went ham on this things to do in LA when it's raining, but we went to the Los 
Feliz neighborhood, which I had never been to before. Oh my God, there were so many good vintage shops, like the inspo for New Wave, out of this world. I was just like geeking out going shop after shop. So that was super fun. The shirt I'm wearing right now, I got at one of the shops. So we do that whole thing. And then I also wanted to go to Mr. Charlie's. Have you ever been there or like heard about it? Mm -mm. Okay. It's like the vegan McDonald's basically. they did like a spin on the branding. So it's still all red and yellow, but instead of like a happy meal, it's a frowny meal, but everything is (laughs) plant-based. And I just like, I'm not really a big fast food person. And so that's why I hadn't been before. Because I was like, if I'm in LA, like I want to go to like nice restaurants. But since we were just like driving around, I was like, you know what? Today's the day. So we stopped there and I got my frowny meal and it was very good. My mom got a chicken sandwich frowny meal. And yeah, it was just a a fun moment. So, and then we go to go to the Hollywood sign, which I didn't realize like how amazing Hollywood Hill is. Have you done that hike and like driven up through those houses? Yeah, I've driven up through the houses. Hannah took me there, but we didn't do, we didn't do a hike. There's like, there was like a, there was a park and like this green grassy area that we went to and played fetch with Pikachu. Uh, Hannah's dog and did that and chilled and stuff. But no, it's really pretty. The neighborhoods are crazy and yeah, crazy. super nice houses. Yeah, I can't believe just how it's all up on that hill right there. I think we probably mm-hmm. went to the same place because it was, it was like a lookout to see the sign. Yes. Yes. Okay. And this is why the story is tragic, guys. The storm, <laughs> we, we literally couldn't even see. Like we get no. up there and we were like, which direction is it? Because it was so foggy and so dark and so raining that when you took a photo, you like, you literally couldn't even see it. You had to like super zoom in. (laughs) You're like the only people up there. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So might have to revisit that one. Um, And then we went down to Venice, ate at the butcher's daughter. Of course, I love that place. And then I did a little jewelry shopping, got myself some nice pieces and Yeah. Oh, the other thing I was going to say about it, being from Nebraska, I feel like you and I are probably pretty good drivers, like compared, I don't know, just having to drive an element, you know, like it's snowing, Mm -hmm. it's icy, it's raining. Like ever since we started driving and we were 16, we've had to learn how to navigate through all of that. And so driving through LA, all the traffic and it being pouring rain, I actually felt like I was at such an advantage. I was like, oh, I'm in my element. Like this is so fine. Inches of water. I don't care. And I was like going fast. And normally LA traffic kind of sketches me out because everyone's like whipping everything. Everywhere and I was like, mm, nope, I'm the experienced driver now. Like I'm in my element. <laughs> so yeah, all these people like don't get rain ever, and you're like, move over. Yeah, I got coming this. through. Yeah, so that was a fun time, and yeah, I don't know. That that's enough for today. Yeah, I loved your reel of proving how close everything is because you're right. Like how you were just saying, Big Bear. I guess I didn't realize it was only like an hour from Palm Springs. That's actually crazy, right? Like. I just geographically don't understand how it can be. It's not like a little bit of snow. Like it is a full mountain town. Like everything mountain, is lodgy. Yeah. And then Palm Springs is like a, like a, a summer vacation. I, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. It's like hot. No, that is crazy. Nebraska and Missouri could never. Could never. Yeah. Because growing up with that, five hours in any direction, it's the same. Yeah, no, I I try to pretend like California doesn't exist because I'm like, I don't want to think about how I could just live there. You know, it's it's just too nice. And oh, same. My mom and I were talking because do fun. you follow that TK California guy on TikTok? 
No. Oh my God. His videos are so funny. He basically is just always saying how California is superior and people will try to rebuttal him and his clapbacks are hilarious. Like he's being ironic, but he's really not wrong about a lot of things. He's like, guys, California, we have everything. We have the shoreline. We have the SoCal challenge, like all this stuff. We have all these restaurants. And he's like, you all out there in Oklahoma, Nebraska, South Dakota, what do you guys have? Tell me, convince me how it's better than here. And I'm like, you know, I don't think I can. You're, you're spitting a lot of facts. It's like, we have a TJ Maxx next to a Home Goods, <laughs> next to Target. Like, no, I mean, there's pros and cons to every state. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to be a Midwest hater, but at least it's like way more expensive. That lets me sleep at night, you know? Okay. <laughs> at least I like have that. I was thinking about this though. How much do you and I spend escaping the Midwest? Still agree. Not trying to hate on the Midwest, but I spend no, a lot sure. of money trying to leave it. And I was like, you know what? If I average that out, it probably is the same as what you would pay in rent if you didn't have to travel all the time. No, I think that's such a good argument for like moving to New York City or moving to LA, 100%. It's like you're paying extra to get all the benefits of being in that place. So you better use those benefits. And like you said, go to Big Bear or go to the beach and surf. So 100%. Yeah, like I don't think, I still don't think you're spending as much per se, you know, escaping and stuff, but <laughs> escaping. 100%. Because like what, right? In LA is like 2000. I know. And like, which is fine. Again, it's it's worth it for those people, for sure. Yeah, but But, how much do I spend on therapy? I mean, not to say that if I wasn't in a place like that, that I still wouldn't be traveling, still wouldn't have to go to therapy, whatever. But I could see how an argument could be made. You're right. No, for sure. Because I have friends, I have a friend in California who had to like pick and choose at weddings she went to last year because she (sighs) couldn't afford to get all of them. So that's, you know, pros and cons to everything. But that's just one person. But yeah. Okay, wait. I I tell myself, you know. (laughs) I do have one more story. I have like a really lighthearted, wholesome story. So this morning I went to go get my little Joshua Tree coffee and go for a walk as I've been doing most mornings here. And I was kind of by this building taking a picture of my freaking drink. And this girl comes up and she's like, get it, girl, get your photo. And her name was Bree and she was actually homeless. She had just gotten off the bus. She was from LA, but we had this like literally hour heart to heart about how she was really caught up in gangs and had a really, really rough rough life. And she's like, I just, this week like felt called. She's like, I just have to leave. Like I need space from that. I'm never going to escape it if I just don't step away. And she said the most beautiful thing that will just stick with me forever. She's like, you know what? I woke up with two gifts this morning. Do you know what that was? And I was like, what? And she was like, I opened both of my eyes. She's like, there are people out there that can't say that, that had work today, that had lunch with a friend that wanted to leave on a trip and they didn't make it to morning. And she's like, as rough as my life has been and losing my mom and all this stuff, like I have the gift of life. And it was just so cool to see someone's perspective that, you know, is going through a tough time right now, but was still so optimistic that more was to come. We just had a really very spiritual moment, like talking about our lives and the, this is like going to give me goosebumps, but she, after we were saying goodbye, I was like, it was so nice to meet you. And she goes, thank you. I really feel like we're already friends. And I was like, (gasps) stop. I was like, that's literally the name of my podcast. And she was like, well, this was all really meant to be. She's like, I still believe God and universe and everyone overlaps at the times. And I always say like, you can learn anything from anyone. 
Like everyone has something to teach you. So she just gave me like a lot of good feels and we were talking about crystals and life and it was so fun. <laughs> and so, yeah, that that was a cute, a cute little morning coincidence of our paths crossing. Wow. What a crazy story. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was cute. So that's yeah, a sweet anyway. moment. And a hundred percent. Like I feel like it's always a good reminder to realize how precious life is. And I feel like I'm seeing some signs like that lately. I saw a video of a guy who had just gotten back from a trip to Mexico and then the next day he had a seizure and it found out he had stage three brain cancer and he's all good. He got the tumor removed, but it's just like watch my life change within 24 hours, like thriving off of a fun vacation to like next week in the hospital getting brain surgery. So he's like, never take life for granted. It happens so fast. And he's like, go to the places you want to go, like live your life. So it has been inspiring me to like get back on that January trip thought process. So I might be taking a trip because I'm like, oh my God, it's so true. Like tomorrow's not promised. Just no, it literally isn't. Every single day is a gift. She's so right. Isn't that such a cool quote? Every single day, if you wake up with two two gifts. gifts, You get to open your eyes. Not just one, two. Two. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Last thing about, uh, I just want to say this about the homeless population. So just giving everyone the time of day and the benefit of the doubt. And a quote my friend Mick shared with me that literally changed my life. She said, if you were them, you would too. So anytime that you find yourself judging someone, say, if I were them, I would too. Like if you had been through what people have gone through, you would probably be doing the same thing. And I think it's easy to judge someone from the outside and be like, well, I would have done this, this, and this. It's like, yeah, but you're not them and you didn't have their past. So how can you say that that's what you would have done or what you would be doing? A hundred percent. That's that's great insight. Jeez. All right. Enough about me today. Kara, how are you? What have you been up to? Yeah, not many updates here. Um, got my new couch. That was probably the most exciting thing that's happened recently. Uh, I hadn't announced which one I got because Loki was nervous. This company had such mixed reviews. You either had a really good experience with this company or like an awful shitty experience. So I'm like, I'm just not going to say which couch I ordered because Loki, it might not come. It might come in a million pieces. So I did go with the green couch. That's from Joybird. I don't want to like plug them at all because they did forget to add brackets to connect the two pieces because it was two pieces that I ordered as one and I can't even connect them. So they've just sent out a technician. So truly understand the mixed reviews. It's just really nice furniture for a good price. So that's why I was willing to risk it a little bit because the prices are so competitive. The pieces are so unique. And even someone messaged me, they're like, wow, how did you find this olive green couch? Because they're not, they're not that many olive green couches that aren't velvet or like, there's just so many different I don't know, variables to finding a good green couch, I guess. So when I found this one, I'm like, I should just try it. So yeah, that was exciting. And my house is like a cottagey vibe. So it kind of matches the vibe and I'm embracing the cottage-ness of it. (laughs) Okay, comfort-wise, how do you feel? Is it soft? Is it fluffy? I think it's a good amount of both. It's not too hard, but it's not like one of those cloud couches that you melt into. I think it's a good amount of firmness. And we got a sleeper sofa just because I only live in a two-bedroom house. And if we have guests, us. If we already have someone on the upstairs bedroom and someone's sleeping on the couch, so we're like, okay, let's just get a sleeper sofa. And the mattress is actually pretty comfy. We were obviously probably going to get a topper to put on it, but without the topper, it's pretty much a, like a pretty comfy mattress. So props to them for that. 
So yeah, it's a good firmness. I actually had Hania. Did I say this? Mm-hmm. Hania went to Nebraska Furniture Mart in Kansas City because they had a Joybird showroom inside Nebraska Furniture Mart because Joybird's like a mostly online company, but they have their furniture in what, 10 showrooms across the US? And one was like 10 minutes from Hania. So she went and drove and sat on a bunch of them. She's like, okay, they're actually comfy. Like go ahead and order. You're not taking a risk on the comfortability. And she literally sent me a selfie video on every single couch and how comfortable they were. I'm like, oh my gosh iconic that is a good friend right there which we'll talk about in this episode which kind of friend that is but yeah no that is the most haunting thing ever too so love a good friend that tests out the couch that you're taking risk on for you but yeah that's about all my updates my mom and I are organizing I'm just a little bit of a squirrel with organizing things like I'll just throw stuff in random places like out of sight out of mind and you know what doesn't help is that Connor is the same we have the same kind of organizational priorities that where it's not a priority at all so Lola has been helping me with that And that is very important to your health and wellness, I think, is to have a very organized home where you know where things are. So you're not getting yourself stressed, not getting to use too much brain power on like figuring out where things are when they can just be organized and categorized and stuff. So Queen Lolo is helping me with that. So yeah. I just realized we're so the opposite with that. So you're really organized on (laughs) like work things. Like, okay, this is going to be at this time and this is the logistics and this is how it's going to roll down. But like in a home space way, you're like less organized. And for me, like I don't keep a calendar at all of like when certain things are at certain times. I just set reminders in my phone and wing it and hope for the best. But like my space is super <laughs> organized every single drawer. So for both of us, I feel like from the outside, one would think that like everything is really organized, but we're only, we're the opposite to that. Super interesting. I, that is so interesting. I really wonder where that comes from. Like what, what makes us that way? Cause it's so true. Like I wouldn't say I'm a disorganized person. And like, I think of a disorganized person as someone who like doesn't have their shit together, is always late, always doing things wrong. But I mean, if you looked at my house and like opened the cabinets where my mom got here, like, yeah, you would think I'm a disorganized person. So that's so interesting. Someone tell us if you know. Maybe it's all just too much brain space to be fully organized in 100% of the areas in your life. Because there's other people whose like appearance is super organized. You know, they're always manicured, their Mm. hair's done, their makeup done, their nails, their outfits are always on point. But then maybe their house is like a disaster and I'm like, you know, I would meet someone and be like, wow, I bet their house is immaculate because like they present so clean. So maybe for all of us, it's like we're just going to do one area. And I don't know. Before we get into today's topic and today's guest, let's do our peaks of the week. Allison, what's your peak? Mm. Okay, my peak of the week has been the thrifting here. I've been a little thrift queen this week, heading up the shops because I'm going to be going home soon. And I'm like, ah, I've got to go thrifting before I get back. And I'm literally wearing a winter coat right now. I don't know why I'm like really cold sitting here today, but I negotiated with this like little small thrift shop. I went up, I was like, how much your coat? She was like 14. I was like, I've got a $5 bill cash. Will that work? I don't need a receipt. And she was like, yep, cool. And I literally had it on and just like said, peace out. (laughs) That's perfect. Hey, it's a women for everyone. Cash is king. Cash is king. My peak There's a guy who is a French baker here in St. Louis. He's from Marseille, France, and he works at Les Macarons. Uh, I think it's in Webster Groves, but I had some macaroons, first macaroons I've had in St. Louis, and they were very good, 10 out of 10. So that was why my peak was having a little sweet treat to reward myself and my mom for all organizational work. All right, now it's time for your guys' peaks. Katie said, reconnecting with my classmates this week. That's awesome. And Kylie said, getting to go to NYC and see my best friend. Aw, love that for you. I hope you have such a good time. 
Allie said, this is the healthiest my relationship with myself has ever been. It feels awesome. And I get to have a mini road trip to volunteer today with my boyfriend. Well, I feel like we should end on that one because we talk about both those things, road trips, relationships with yourself and how it affects your social relationships and all of that in this episode. So as always, send in your peeks to our Instagram at Podcast. But yeah. Let's get into today's guest. So today's guest is Dr. Chelsea Shields. She is an award-winning anthropologist, founder of Branthropology, a research and strategy consulting business, and multi-time TED fellow, TED speaker, and a speaking coach. Dr. Shields graduated with a dual PhD in both biological and cultural anthropology from Boston University, where her dissertation, The Social Life of Placebos, focused on why placebos evolved and how they are elicited socially. Dr. Chelsea Shields works with clients all over the world to help them understand how humans evolved, how they're influenced by nonverbal context, and how we can design events, brands, products, communities, and our own social lives in ways that magnify the beneficial effects and limit the adverse ones, basically teaching people how to dose the placebo better. It exists regardless, might as well know how to wield it to your advantage. She is absolutely brilliant. She has so much knowledge to share. And without further ado, here is Dr. Chelsea Shields. Hello, thank you for being here. Hey guys, I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to talk about this topic with you two. First of all, our listeners need to know, because I feel like this says so much about you, your bookshelf behind you, the color coordinated is, <gasps> oh my God, it's like Wait, she six feet high. Up and there's so many more than we even thought. Isn't it wow. beautiful? It's my favorite thing. These are my books from grad school. That is so satisfying. That's incredible. And I do have a bookshelf over here of like the black and white books that didn't have color. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. You guys are over there. So, <laughs> so clearly you're a big oh, reader. That's incredible. Yes. Okay. So taking it back to grad school, do you want to start there? Tell us about your education. Where did you go to school? I would love to. So I um, went to undergrad at Brigham Young University and I had eight siblings. So we had to kind of pay our own way. And one of the ways that I made money and got my education kind of paid for in college was that I ran these study abroad programs to West Africa, to Ghana. So I started it up there because I had been there a couple times. And then they would pay for me every summer to take students and professors, and we would all do our own research. So I just found kind of, uh, I kind of hustled my way in undergrad to be able to get to Africa every single summer. And then I would do research every fall, winter. And I was able to get into grad school, a master's and PhD program at Boston University in anthropology. Same thing, did my research in West Africa. And what was really cool about that is I started out as a cultural anthropologist studying, you know, ritual and how societies cohere and how we've evolved to be hypersocial, which we'll talk about. And I ended up having to go do all the coursework and the comprehensive exams and the dissertation for the PhD in biological anthropology because it crossed over so much that I had to understand the evolutionary science and the neurobiology that's happening and the biochemistry that's happening in these rituals and in these social interactions. So at the end of all of that education, I got to write my dissertation on the evolution of placebo effects, uh, why they evolved, how they evolved. We often measure them now in biomedical healing encounters, but the placebo effect evolved way before we had allopathic medicine, right? So the evolution of the placebo effect and how basically placebo effects are stacked in rituals in order to have a biochemical effect on all of the listeners, the participants, and the workers. And so I was able to kind of collect some of the first data of indigenous healers and spirit possession, 
I was able to collect data on their, on all the patients. Um, obviously nothing that could have electricity or be refrigerated. So it was more like blood pressure and oxygenation rates and things that I could work off battery, right? But we were able to prove that there is what's called an entrainment fact in polyrhythmic drumming in West Africa. And so we're kind of showing some of the placebo effects that are actually effective and working. And when you say placebo, think people think, oh, that means it's just in your head, it's nothing. But it's the opposite of that. It means that you were able to trigger chemical chemicals, hormones, uh, body processes using meaning and culture rather than using a biochemical substrate. And so that's actually how that placebo effect is triggered more often is through cultural triggers, not necessarily chemical ones. Or even in, let's say, an office with a doctor, what's actually causing those placebo effects is those social interactions not the biochemical substrate, right? And that's what we're trying to measure. And so instead of, I worked at, with Harvard Medical School's Ted Kapchuk. He is the director of the program in placebo studies. So it's all these famous doctors who study placebo effects in the actual lab. So they'll do a fake doula and a real doula, and they'll see which one has higher placebos. So if it, does it really matter that the doula knows what they're doing, or does it just matter that you have a birth companion, right? Then they'll do the same thing with like Reiki or um, with acupressure, a real one and a fake one. And they're really starting to measure these things in ways that are having an effect on the biomedical community because all they want is proof, right? And then I would go out and do similar tests on rituals and we would kind of share our findings. And it was just like this beautiful relationship of really trying to uncover the physiology of social interaction, basically. That is so fascinating. How long were you out there studying all of that? So it took me a long time. I started in 2005. <laughs> I ended in 2017. Oh my god! So, goodness. but that was a master's and two PhDs. It took forever, and I, you know, uh, was realized I'm a wonderful teacher. I love my students. I still have some of my students write me to this day because I always try to find a cool way to teach it or have it apply to your lives or give you a challenge that you have to go out and do socially, which is so hard, right, in college. But I was not as great at like, just like research and writing. Like the dissertation, I had like straight A's all through my schooling. And then dissertation, I was like two years in and like, I can't do this. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we just learn things about ourselves too over time of like, I, I love teaching. It, it's my retirement plan, but I needed to find a career where I'm not alone doing research. I need to be with people talking, strategizing. And so that's kind of what I do right now is I teach on the side and and then I run my own like consultancy for, for work. That is incredible. I would love to ask you, so you went from learning about stack placebos and being a, a pioneer in that field. What brought you to studying social needs and social health? It's a great question. So what surprised me actually, as we're trying to figure out the neurochemistry of a placebo effect, why does how I perceive my environment or the meaning behind a white lab coat, why do any of those things impact my body, right? And as we're trying to figure out how something meaningful gets under the skin. There's a great book on enculturation, The Encultured Mind by Daniel Lende. He's at uh, South Florida. But it really talks about how culture gets under your skin. And that's the type of like the crux of what I love studying, which is all of these things that we think have meaning that are actually affecting our physiology and we don't give it credit. So I like to tell people, imagine every step, every move you made with your body made like a piano noise, 
right? You would totally start to notice like, oh my gosh, like, okay, I'm noticing when I'm making steps. But this is what we're doing socially. Every social interaction, whether it's digital, whether it's imagined, that means you're just daydreaming, or whether it's real, has like an effect. Think of it like a ringtone or a sound. And we just walk through our days not knowing that it's doing that. And then we're like, why did I just feel sad? Why did I just get excited? Why did my body just change? Well, we're not paying attention. It's that social interaction that's giving us dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, the happy drugs. Or if we do something awkward or weird or rude, or we actually get the opposite where we feel bad and we don't realize that every social interaction is kind of that charge that's changing the way we feel. And so that's kind of how I went from placebos to sociality is the discovery. And this is a really cool discovery. It's called ecological dominance, but it's the idea that once humans were able to master their habitats, meaning that people weren't just randomly getting killed by predators, people weren't randomly getting killed by climate, so we could own and master our environments. Once you're able to do that, natural selection is no longer the mechanism by which evolution works because no one's naturally necessarily being selected off because of our habitats, right? So what starts happening in the selection pressures, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, is social selection. So who is has the highest status? Who has the most resources? Who has the most relationships? Who has influence? What we're finding, and COVID's a perfect example of that, is it was no longer, you know, necessarily nature who was deciding who lived and died in COVID. It was how close are you to positions of power? How much access do you have to certain drugs? How close are you to hospitals with the right kinds of care? So it all became about like material and social determinants of health. And so that's kind of what dragged me through kind of this social health and social wellness uh, last 10 years of my life is realizing that humans are quite unaware that all of our body systems from stress to health resource to pain and punishment to our happy hormones to our endocrine system, all of that has gone from being affected by our environments to now being affected by our sociality. And so every day we're being pulled like puppets from our sociality. That's how why we feel all crazy and none of us know about it. And so I think that's why I'm really passionate about the topic now is I can talk about placebos all day and people kind of care. But when I start to talk about you have evolved for social wellness and that's why you feel terrible all the time and let me explain why, people get really interested. I'm so excited to talk to you guys about today's sponsor, Rosetta Stone. They're the most trusted language learning program out there. They've been experts for 30 years and millions of users have trusted them to help them learn second, third, fourth languages. And this is especially timely for me because one of my goals for the year, I literally just said this in our Patreon goal setting workshop last week, is that I want to learn Spanish. I studied German in college and unfortunately, I don't get to go to Germany or Austria very often. But I have been spending a lot of time in South America and Mexico. I spent all of January in Colombia and I loved it so much that I'm going back in April. I'm going to Tulum next week. And I'm like, you know what? It is time that I really buckle down and get better at Spanish. If you also are thinking of traveling more, learning second, third, fourth languages, I can't recommend getting started with Rosetta Stone enough. If you would like to get Rosetta Stone and not put off learning language any longer, there's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Already Friends listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off for unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com today. 
And thank you to Rosetta Stone for sponsoring the Artie Friends podcast and helping me in my Spanish language learning journey. As a retail shop owner, I know how important it is to have a good, reliable POS system. That's why I'm so excited about our sponsor today, Shopify. Shopify has already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source. Track everything across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers both inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash already friends. That is all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash already friends to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash already friends. Thank you again to Shopify for sponsoring the already friends podcast. This episode is sponsored by Honey Love. Honey Love is revolutionizing the bra game. Can you think of a bra that you actually like to wear? One that doesn't poke you, does not hurt, and that you kind of forget that you're wearing? For me, I'm thinking of my Honey Love bra. I have fully said goodbye to wearing underwire and bulky fabric bras that trap heat. Honey Love's bras feature supportive bonding that eliminates the need for underwire without sacrificing lift. The fabric is super soft and it feels like a second skin and you'll immediately feel and notice the difference. Right now, I'm wearing the silhouette bra and I'm totally forgetting that I'm wearing a bra, but it totally lifts. It feels so supportive. It looks so good under shirts. And it's not like those bras that give you that uniboob effect when you put on a tight shirt or tight clothes. It separates, it lifts, it does everything that a bra should be doing. I'm also obsessed with the shapewear. I have the superpower thong, which is kind of like this mid-stomach shapewear piece. The way that it gives my body this hourglass shape that I did not know that I had and is so comfortable. I have traditional shapewear from a few different brands and they kind of hurt so bad. Within a couple hours, I feel like I can't breathe. But with Honey Love's shapewear, it's so comfortable. It's meant to be able to breathe, to live your day-to-day life in. And I feel like I can definitely use the shapewear for my wedding. So I'm very excited about that. So if you're ready to step into that next level comfortable bra and shapewear, it's your time to get Honey Love. Go to honeylove.com slash already friends and you can get 20% off your entire order with that link. So it's honeylove.com, H-O-N-E-Y-L-O-V-E.com slash already friends for 20% off. Make sure to use that code to show your support of the show. And thanks again to Honey Love for sponsoring the Already Friends podcast. I think that's a perfect place to segue back a little bit to, would you call them all hormones, like the dopamine, the oxytocin? Would you go into those? Because personally for me, I hear all of those words and I don't really know what they mean. Like what does, could you just go into detail? I'd love to learn more about them. Absolutely. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Again, I'm not a huge expert in that. Just I, I know how to teach it enough. But one thing that's really, really interesting, again, that I don't think people know about their own bodies is that you have multiple body systems that help you navigate the world around you. So one of them is your autonomic nervous system. That's your stress or relaxation or 
It's not so much relaxation as when you're sleeping, your body wants to heal and repair and take care of itself. When you're stressed, it doesn't care about anything that's gonna keep you alive long-term. It only cares about what's gonna keep you alive short-term, right? So it's this balance between the system of short-term survival and long-term survival, long-term care. That's one system. You have this other system, that's this hormonal endocrine feedback loop. That's a totally different system. Then you have this other system that's this pain, pleasure, motivation system. So, and they, some of them use hormones, all of them kind of, you know, from cortisol, that's going to get you that adrenaline that you need. But if you constantly have cortisol and there's not lions in your room, that's what's going to get you that belly fat. So that's kind of that stress hormone. Um, when we're talking about a hormone like dopamine, that is used in multiple ways by your body to get you to do something. Okay, dopamine kind of motivates you. Dopamine gets you excited to go out in the dating world, gets you excited to write that book, gets you excited to go, you know, compete for social status. Um, If you don't have enough dopamine, that's what keeps you apathetic, lethargic, um, unmotivated, right? Serotonin is, and, and people with ADD don't have a lot of that dopamine, which is really interesting. There's a great book called Dopamine Nation that just really gets into dopamine. And what we find is people who lack dopamine We try to seek it in other ways. So we're kind of hacking the system. So we're seeking dopamine in food. We're seeking dopamine in uh, escapism. So instead of going and being social, I'm going to go watch Friends or I'm going to go binge watch something that makes me feel like I'm being social. So we're getting dopamine in all these kind of fake ways. And what happens is your body does not like to be in pleasure, 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 just like it does not like to be in stress, stress, stress. It always wants that homeostasis. So if we are constantly pleasing ourselves, your body will start to give you those hormones that make us feel worse about ourselves or withdraw that dopamine, not let that dopamine in in order to say, hey, 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 you need a little pain in your life. You need to go exercise. You need to go out of the house. You need to, that's the only way you're going to survive socially. So that's why we feel so bad about ourselves is it's often we've been pleasuring ourselves so Mm. much that our body wants us to go do the things that are really going to make a difference. And so that's why we, that pleasure pain is something that has been hijacked by sociality. So in the past, that pleasure pain would be um, you know, you're, you feel pain if you're in a situation where a predator can get you and you feel pleasure when you're in a situation where you feel safe. Oxytocin is one of those safe chemicals, right? So when we're bonding with someone and we feel trust and we connect, and that could be touch, that could just be actual trust where we're not even touching. Um, all of a sudden we get that oxytocin, which makes us feel safe. Um, laughter is a really quick way to get that oxytocin and interacting with humans is one of the best ways. So oxytocin is really hard to get in kind of that hacked junk food way. And so that's one way that I just tell people you have to, I had a partner where every morning we would hug and I would just kind of tickle his back and arms and he would do the same. And it's like, we called it an oxytocin hug. Like everyone needs about 30 seconds of that a day, whether you can get it from a partner or a friend, but your body physically needs it. And it's really hard for you to get in these other avenues. So that's oxytocin. Serotonin is the happy hormone. Uh, it's what makes us feel like we're doing all right. Life is good. Like I don't need anything. I'm good. So think of dopamine as like, oh my God, I need to be better. These these people are better. Like that comparison, like it's that drive. And then your serotonin is like, ah, no, I'm fine. You know? So people who are stuck in depression or anxiety and like ADD and need that dopamine and we give them serotonin, all of a sudden I'm feeling a lot better about my life. I'm not so anxious that I'm not the best in the world. Right. But then you got to balance those because if we're always on that serotonin, then we're not actually getting out and doing the things we need to, to protect our social life. So even if you are totally, you know, you're like, I'm going to survive without my social isolated, or I have enough money to be, um, take care of myself and my kids for the rest of my life. doesn't matter. Your body's hardwired 300,000 plus years ago. So, you know, more than that actually nowadays, and it's hardwired. 
if you're alone for too long to make you feel bad and make you kind of motivated to do better and to get out there and to be competitive in the social marketplace. So, you know, that's just something I think we should all learn that even if we ignore these things, they're still happening within our bodies and they're being triggered by our social environment. So we should be aware of them, right? Wow, that is absolutely crazy. Well, a common theme with your TED Talks and your research is that social wellness goes way beyond our head. It affects so much in our lives. So can you just break down on a very basic level, what is social wellness and how would you define that? Absolutely. So I think of it, so where I lived in West Africa, in Ghana, they did kente cloth weaving. And so think of like a tapestry where you have, you know, the threads going one way and the threads going one way and they're completely intertwined. So that's how I think of uh, social wellness. Think of it like a social safety net, that if you have enough quality and quantity of relationships, that that will protect you in a time of catastrophe or chaos or natural disaster, right? It's that give and take of that sociality. So what happens is when people make more money, they can kind of hire out and it's easier to tell someone what to do than to create a reciprocal relationship. So the more money we have, the less we are using sociality to help with childcare, right? When I was poorer at Boston University and I had my daughter, I would trade with this other woman who was a nurse and I would watch her baby when I was writing my dissertation and she would watch my baby when she had, you know, when I had to do this and she had to go to, when I had to teach and she had to go to nursing and we just figured it out so we didn't have to use money, right? But if you have money, that's way too much of a hassle. So what we start doing is the more money we have, we start hiring out these social roles that we used to have to accommodate for. But those social roles actually are our safety net. So I feel really bad for certain celebrities. I think of Carolyn, uh, she was in um, on Love Island and she was in, um, uh, she hosted Love Island and she's in England. Anyway, there's a lot of celebrities and a lot of wealthy people that uh, stop really uh, fostering these kind of relationships that are honest and real. And instead kind of, they want to like move up the system. And what ends up happening is when something bad happens, when they're, rep- when they get canceled or their reputation gets harmed or something just bad happens, they don't have anyone to catch them. Um, people turn away from them, right? Because they were acquaintances or they were people that were only with them for the money or the prestige or the reputation. And so it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. This is why this applies to everyone. Your body has evolved to desire a social safety net. So if you don't have five to six really close quality friends, and the way that I describe that is who can pick you up from an embarrassing surgery, right? Who will bail you out of jail, right? Who will let you sleep on their couch for a couple of days if your life is just imploded? Who will fly to come get you or help you if something really bad has happened, okay? So who are those people? And if you don't have five or six of those, and I have a list of kind of qualities those people need to have, then you're missing what's called that quality safety net. And then after that, you want, you know, 15 to 25 kind of close acquaintances that will show up at birthday parties, that will cheer you on in life, that will share your things, that will go to lunch with you. Again, these aren't necessarily people you'd ask for money or that you tell all your deepest, darkest secrets, 
But these are people who have your back when things get hard. And so you want both of those on top of, hopefully, a, a really stable family attachment from your past and one you're building in your future, right? That's kind of a different story, that immediate family. But we're always searching to have a safety net. And when we don't have that, that's why things like breakups and divorces are really, really traumatizing to us is that safety net, almost like having a financial safety net, it, it helps us not constantly be on the lookout for our our social well-being. So if we are married, you see people stop hanging out with friends as much. We all have that girlfriend, right? Or if you're in a relationship, you kind of stop investing in these other things because you feel so safe all of a sudden. And it's the same thing. As soon as you're alone again in the world, you're like, I don't have anyone. And it's it's because we mentally require feeling safe socially in order to focus on other things. Wow. So for me, it's that tapestry, you know, that warp and that weft, you know, that, that kente cloth. So you know, when you take someone out, there's a hole. When you put someone in, it's fuller, it's tighter. So I like thinking of it as a tapestry because some people you can't, <laughs> they have to be in there, like mother-in-laws <laughs> or like, you know, family members. And you might not be able to like take that thread out. Okay, then I'm going to get 10 threads that make that thread less likely to to be the one I have to rely on. So I kind of like thinking of it like a tapestry there, but it is the glue that holds us together. So without that chemical uh, reward and punishment for our social relationships, uh, if we didn't feel pain and pleasure at rejection or connection, like we wouldn't be able to stay connected as a society or a species that's grown to billions. It's just, we've never seen a species grow to billions like this. It's crazy. Um, We've never had a global culture Uh, We've never had every single report from every single country available to us at any single moment. So our society is just growing to the billions and billions. And if we didn't have kind of that desire to belong, uh, we would never cohere as a species. And so that's what helps uh, groups to cohere. There's a great book by E.O. Wilson on sociobiology about this concept that humans, as much as people say we're violent or selfish, we are actually quite altruistic. There's another book by uh, Robert Zapolsky. It's called Behave. And it's all about the fact that we've had to learn how to cooperate in order to exist in this complicated of a world. Going off of how you said when people get more money, sometimes they stop exchanging those relationships. What do you see technology's role in that? Do you feel like people are more lonely than ever? I 100% think they're more lonely than ever. In fact, we have studies that show that. Uh, Number one cause of death when I was growing up and when I was having my daughter, so that was 12 years ago, was car accidents for teenagers. Like now it's suicide. So another thing in 2017, social isolation and loneliness just leapfrogged obesity as the number two killer in the United States, only followed by heart disease. So what I like to tell people is it is worse for your health to only have digital friends or to have bad friends than it is for you to eat junk food every day. And yet we feel guilty for eating, you know, pizza and dessert, but not for not having a good social life. And that's what's killing us more. Wow. No, that's absolutely insane. Because in my head, when you're saying that, I'm thinking, okay, so their cloth has a bunch of holes in it. And like that is the ripple effect is all of these terrible side effects. Can you go more into what other things, like other negative consequences of having a, a net with holes? in it? Absolutely. So there's a really good study called the rat 
part. I have a link for a really good TED talk on it that you guys can access, but look it up. And it's basically the idea that sociality actually cures addiction. Or moreover, you could argue that addiction is how we deal with the lack of social interactions. So those natural highs and lows, that oxytocin, that excitement, that first kiss, that safety, that um, think about how our worlds used to be when our brains and bodies developed. We probably had five or six cohorts. We probably had 15 to 20 aunts and uncles. We probably had, you know, 150 people total um, in our society. And that was really easy for us to be able to figure out who was trustworthy, who was not, how to figure out a niche in that society, whether it's being tallest, strongest, fastest, prettiest, funniest, best mom, best hunter, best gatherer. We all were able to like find something that made us feel like not only we belong to this society, but that we were participating in this division of labor. It gave us a sense of not only belonging, but it gave us a sense of stability in our social group. In fact, people at the top have a lot, the most dominant have a lack of stability and the people at the bottom have a lack of stability. Most people want to be in the middle of that social status hierarchy because that's where it's the most stable. And so that's what we're all fighting for within a society, right? But it's a lot easier to do that when I'm in a society of 150 people, not 7 billion. So right now, no teenager can be the fastest, strongest, prettiest, smartest. No no professor can be the smartest, best. No no model can be the most perfect, right? No one can, first of all, no one feels like they belong because no one's welcome you into a society. This is one of the problems I think we have with our teens. No one's teaching you how the world works. We don't have rituals. We don't have multi-generational homes. We've kind of lost all of that social, uh, even religion has gone down. People aren't attending kind of community gatherings as much. So think of all of that social tapestry. Now our, our blanket has a lot of holes in it. And so that's just society. That's not even the kid's fault. So we just all lack a sense of belonging. Uh, The second thing we lack is kind of feeling like we're contributing to society in a beneficial way. And it's just because now we have access to every single person on the planet and no one will ever be the best. And that feels bad. So that's one of the reasons why I think, and we'll get into digital stuff and social media in a second, but one of the reasons I think that we isolate is we're just constantly feeling too much. And so we either isolate and stay indoors or we limit our social interactions to digital because we have a little bit more control over that and they're not as real. But what we find is that the way that we are coping with that is by, hey, I want to, I just got broken up with. I want to change my biochemistry. I'm going to eat brownies. Or someone, a troll just said a horrible mean comment. It hit my shadow self. There is some truth to it. I'm going to go do drugs. I'm going to go do this. So we're constantly trying to to cope with our biochemistry through chemicals instead of what the rat park experiment shows us, which is if we could cope with people. So what they did is they had rats in a room, they had like opioids, and they were just pushing the drug button all day long. Like, woohoo, this feels so good. <laughs> and it's and that's what humans do. Honestly, I think humans all day long are trying to feel better and feel less worse. And then they introduced an exercise wheel. And then a bunch of uh, rats loved that. They were not pushing the opium button or the opioid button, they were now running on this treadmill and they were getting this like high. They were loving it. So people started getting addicted to running and like some of the rats wouldn't stop running for days and like (laughs) it was hurting them, right? And so then they what they created was uh, basically like an amusement park where all the rats can kind of come and hang out. And after they did that, none of the rats were in the rooms pushing the opioid buttons. Wow. 
and none of the rats were addicted to the exercise wheels. And so I just love that experiment because it's it's basically showing us that like even though it's hard for us to make that connection when we're alone, when we're, you know, captive apes like any ape in a zoo, we have stress symptoms and we feel anxious and we cope with all of those feelings um you know with coping mechanisms whether that's biochemistry like taking um uh drugs or by doing behavioral things that elicit that same biochemistry like over exercise under exercise eating disorders porn masturbation uh sex addiction um anything that i can do quickly behaviorally to change my biochemistry is just the same thing as pushing that button and so why i love that um example is it kind of shows us that like when i'm helping if i'm teaching people how to like cope, I tell them, yeah, get rid of a bunch of stuff. But what I really want you to do is start feeling your days with social shit. Mm -hmm. And I want you to start investing in the people who give you reciprocity. And I want you to hang out with them more. And I want you to build closer relationships. And those are the things that are going to make it so you're not feeling so bad that you want to drink all day. Going off the drinking all day, uh, something we talk about on this podcast a lot is being mindful of how much alcohol you consume. Do you have examples of what people can do besides going out in their only social interaction being over drinks, how do you feel like that affects the depth and the honesty of social interactions? And what other things could you suggest, like going to get coffee or going for a walk that can better someone's life? I love that question. I do want to say that um, alcohol, if alcohol is a problem that you have, it's actually something that lowers our inhibitions. Alcohol is actually really good for social situations because it lowers your anxiety. If you have high traits of neuroticism where you're constantly on guard, if you're a little bit socially awkward or anxious, uh, which a lot of people are nowadays, be just because our social worlds are so big, right? You just don't have that confidence in who you are and where you belong anymore. So alcohol is actually pretty good at helping us calm and and relax and like be ourselves in a social situation. So I'm not 100% against alcohol socially. I am against alcohol in the home individually as a coping mechanism. And so I kind of make that distinction. Uh, One of the things I do is I don't have alcohol in my home, but when I go out with friends, I'll totally have a couple drinks. And I don't see anything necessarily wrong with that. But to answer your, your question of, okay, well, we don't want to create this whole culture around alcohol. Same thing. A lot of cultures, um, people who have food sensitivities or diet sensitivities or overeating problems or eating disorders, they have a lot of issue that every social interaction is over food. Mm-hmm. I think about every culture, you know, potlucks, foods, dinners, uh, and it's usually not that healthy and it usually has gluten and it's usually has a lot of sugar. And so it's the same thing. Humans like to get together over sugar and alcohol so that when we're, it, it just calms us down a little bit because we're anxious. So just knowing that is really helpful. Like, oh, oh, the reason we're eating, the reason we're drinking is because we're all anxious and it just gives us something to do so that we can talk to each other. So that's just important to know. And then what I would recommend is I think what's lacking nowadays is multi-generational friendships. So I would recommend like whoever is a friend of yours right now that's like 10 years younger, 10 years older or more, like definitely invest in them. The second thing I think that's lacking is just the old, my parents used to do this all the time and I can't believe I'm going back to it, but just inviting people to dinner. So what it does is it forces you to clean your house. It forces you to, you know, not isolate or be depressed if that's a problem for you. It forces you to focus on others. It forces you to kind of slow cook a meal, which is, you know, people rarely like serve others like McDonald's 
McDonald's, right? So, and then that slow cooking a meal is really healthy for you. And the food is actually usually healthier as well. So it forces you to do all of these behaviors. It forces you to invite someone into your home. And when you do that, they feel part of your in-group. It forces you to interact with your friends and your children, which your children need a lot of what's called allo mothers or allo fathers. And what that is, is someone that's not their parent, who they trust, who they can go to if there is an issue with their parent. A lot of teens don't have that nowadays. And so, you know, communities used to offer that. I used to go to a church where we had like these young women's leaders and I loved it, but I don't like the damage that a church did. So I don't want my kid to have that, but now she's missing out on having that allo mother. So I try to bring these women into my home and have dinner with my child. And so they're learning from these other people, whether that's men or women. And uh, also diversity. I love having, exposing my family, even my Mormon family. I'll bring like my, my gay best friend and his partner to Thanksgiving, or I'll bring over, you know, my friends from West Africa. And I, I exposing people to different perspectives is huge. Not only for just growing their worldview, but as your worldview grows, you feel less isolated. You feel, it's kind of like looking up at the stars or looking at the mountains. It increases your perspective of the world and you're able to kind of cope just by seeing the world in a new light because we can basically create our own perceptions of the world. So all of those reasons, I like to invite people over. So I have a challenge once a week, which is not that much, but still it's a lot if you're not doing it, right? Once a week, I'm already gonna be cooking for my kid. I want to have someone over. So that's what I, that's one thing I try to do. Another thing I try to do is find those friends. And I have a list of them for you guys. If you don't have those five to six friends, I try to figure out who those are in my life. And once or twice a month, I take them out to lunch and just spend two hours and just hang out and lunch or dinner. And I'm just like investing in that quality time with those people who I really, really want to create those strong relationships. With you saying all that, I don't think I realized I knew how bad our social wellness was, you know, post-COVID, just being in a world full of social media. But I, I can see when you're talking these structural issues that our society has, like how you're saying, like not as many people are going to church or we weren't exposed to, like you said, 150 people in our community, like we were in the 50s or the 60s or 70s. So as someone who is a consultant and has a business, if you were to repair society, what things would you make mandatory or what would be the perfect formula for a life with good social wellness? I know you gave a few good examples there, but any other big structural issues that you're seeing? I love this question. I wish I would have had time to prepare an answer. Sorry, I know. We're throwing you off with these off. No, you're right. I love this We're question. So it's curious. such a good question. So the first thing I would do is tell everyone to get off social media. Mm-hmm. And I know that's hard to hear because I like it too but it's fake. It's like junk food. It's like eating sugar all day. It's not actually giving you the hormones that you need. And if you study the way that the algorithms are made, so I also, as a consultant and helping businesses, I help companies understand which emotions, because people understand emotions before they understand logic. So if you're in advertising or marketing or branding, which is what I do, uh, and you don't understand how to convey emotions quickly, you're not going to get clicks and likes and conversions because people aren't responding to the tagline logically, right? So you have to be able to show visually and with words in under seven seconds. It used to be longer, but not today on today's scroll. In under seven seconds, you have to be able to convey an emotion and an emotion that's going to get someone to stay there longer. So I help companies do this. And what we have found is that certain emotions lead to certain behaviors. So if we want someone to give lots of money and be generous, we know we have to make them sad. 
That's just the science of generosity. You, The science of if we want something to go viral, it has to be funny. It has to be happy. It has to just like stop someone in their tracks and make them laugh. You know, even though people share a lot of tragic things, they don't go viral in the same way something happy does. Um, but the problem is, you know, the sociality, like I said, it's not just punish, it's not just pleasure. It's also pain. It's a double-edged sword. So the problem is, is we also have on top of kind of these positive things we're getting, we also get all of this negative. So what we find is if you make someone angry, it scientifically will increase their engagement. They're more likely to share, comment, retweet, post. And what, if we know anything about algorithms on social media, the only way they get a dollar from their advertisers is if they can prove someone engaged with an ad. So in the Congress meeting a couple months ago, Facebook admitted that they share angry posts five times more than happy posts. So this is why I say get off social media is not only are we just not, our brains and bodies just did not evolve to be competing with millions of people and it's really effing us up. But on top of that, the systems that are running these things don't care about your social health. They don't care if you're going crazy. They don't care if suicide's going nuts. What they care about at the end of the day is getting clicks and getting clicks means making you angry. And so what I see is we're just feeding into this anger thing on social media and we're all fighting each other. And again, if I were in charge to make people angry, you also create what's called in-group out-groups. So make the skinny girls mad at the fat girls. Make the curly hairs mad at the straight hairs. Make the Republicans mad at the, Repu- at the Democrats. Make the stay-at-home moms mad at the working moms. Make the women mad at the men. Make the, right? And that's what we see on social media is a lot of binary types of arguments, which are not even binary arguments. Men are this way, women are this way, are not even scientifically valid, to be honest. If you look at bell curves, there are more differences among and between women than there are between between men and women. So all of these arguments, there's more similarities between Republicans and Democrats than there are among all Republicans out there. These are all just bell curves. So those in-group, out-group things that people are trying to do to us is false. Those anger, that constant anger is false. That comparanoia is false. So there's only three things, and I could go on for hours. There's only three things that your social media is doing to you. And that's the number one thing I would stop. And the, and the reason why my backing for that is both like, you know, someone like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk have all admitted that they're not great at social science. Some of them are on the spectrum, right? They're in computer science, mathematical sciences. That's where statistically men tend to do better. Well, what do women tend to do better in? Sociality, social intelligence, emotional intelligence, social relationships, being able to have an affiliative relationship, not a hierarchical one. Women are great at that. Women didn't develop any of these systems. They didn't consult with social scientists. None of what we are calling social digitally has ever been designed for human sociality. That is tragic. And I see it with all of us. Like, I know how much anxiety I get from social media. And then we just keep doing it. Do you have any information of like why it is so addictive and fulfilling and like why we all just like can't get off of it? Like, it's so much easier said than done to be like, ah, I'm just going to not go on anymore. And why do we think that it fulfills our social needs? Well, it does a little bit. Just like when we're feeling like shit and I want a donut, it does. It makes me feel good right away. But it doesn't give me what that, so me craving sugar it evolved 6.7 million years ago when we split from chimpanzees and we were trying to find figs. Figs are what most chimpanzees love. They have really, really, really high caloric intake. So anything that's going to give me, once I find it, it's going to give me the most amount of calories. I want to get rewarded for that. So I keep 
I remember where that stash is next season. And so I keep coming back and finding high caloric intake things. You know, I would have to eat so many leaves or so many locusts to get that same caloric intake of a fig. So our bodies and brains have evolved to really seek that high caloric intake like sugar rush. So that donut is going to give me that but it's not a fig. It didn't give me the water I needed. It didn't give me the nutrients I needed. And there's even bugs that they eat in them that it didn't give me that I needed. So nothing about that donut gave me what I needed except that immediate reward. And that's how social media works. So if you do a post and it's amazing, they're not going to give you all a hundred likes at once. No. Every time you close the app and come back, they dole out a couple more and a couple more comments and a couple more likes because they know that's going to make you feel good and come back. And then they get the anger going and then they make you feel good again. And then they get the anger going. Then they make you feel good again. And that's how you stay is once I feel bad, I'm going to stroll again till I feel better. And then I feel better and then I'm going to scroll. Oh, now I feel good. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Now I feel bad. Now I'm going to scroll until I feel better. Okay. They do that on purpose. They, the algorithm is designed, especially on TikTok, uh, to keep you scrolling by, by messing with your happiness and messing with your sadness. Then on top of that, if you actually get rid of the app or kind of get out of the app, it's also designed to trickle you in. So whether that's kind of your notifications, whether there's a little pop-up, it's, it's completely designed to say, hey, get a little reward now, get a little reward now. So it's just like eating that junk food constantly instead of getting the real sociality, but it's a lot easier. It's cheaper and easier for me to go get a donut than to make a good meal. It's cheaper and easier for you to get a couple likes than to go make a good friend. I do want people just to feel like it's not your fault. I just, there's these cyclical feedback loops, you know, your stress system, your health resource allocation system, which is do I heal and repair or do I um, make sure she's tough right now? There's your, you know, your pleasure pain, there's conditioned responses, there's learned coping mechanisms. And that's what I try to teach kids is when we're 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, that's when we begin to feel a lot of that social stress. And so we begin to get coping mechanisms. Every single one of us in middle school and high school uh, turned to something that helped us cope with that stress. Now, what kills me in this country is that we don't have classes to help kids deal with these emotions. So your kid can turn to heroin or the soccer team to deal with those emotions. And right now we're just kind of like leaving it up to the kid <laughs> and we're not teaching them like you're going to experience horrendous rejection. It's going to feel like shit. Here's some ways to deal with that. And the reason we're not doing that is we know we're never taught. So some of the things I do, I don't want my kid to drink. I don't want my kid to isolate or get depressed and sleep for 15 hours. I don't want my kid to do what I do. So we're not teaching our kids. So they're just developing that. And what's interesting is as you develop coping mechanisms, you create a super highway of neural pathways. So then that coping mechanism is easier and easier and easier to get the high. So if I try exercise, it's just not where I normally got the high. But if I masturbate, boom, I can quickly get the high. So we learn over time what those neural grooves are to get us to feel better, to stop that biochemistry. And so my advice is if you haven't developed those, if you're a young kid listening, like there are certain things you can do to change your biochemistry. Some are better than others. So figure out what that healthier, not always healthy, but healthier coping mechanism is. So instead of eating a whole pizza by yourself, I'm okay if you binge watch a couple shows. Like for me, that's the trade-off that this is a little bit healthier. So, you know, I'm not going to tell someone go run every day because that's just going to make them feel better if they're not currently running. So I just would encourage every 
everyone to like start tracking how you're feeling and how you're coping. And then let's swap some of those coping mechanisms for things that are healthier. So one of the most fascinating things that to study is what's called culture bound syndromes. So I did a year in an eating disorder clinic where I studied women with eating disorders. And what I'm studying right now is teenager coping mechanisms like self-harm. And what's so fascinating is that these are contagious. What that means is that there's little pockets in the world where if people are self-harming by taking a pencil and rubbing the eraser till it burns, then that's what happens in that geolocation. If people are self-harming by using a razor blade on their upper thigh, then that's what kind of starts spreading in their geolocation. If people are doing disordered eating, whether that's bulimia, anorexia, restricting, that's what starts spreading in theirs. If pill popping becomes common here, that's what starts spreading here. So what that tells us is as kids are going through this stuff, they kind of just, they don't know how to cope. So if one of their friends is coping in a certain way, they're like, oh, I'm going to try that. And it works. And then they keep doing that thing. So that's one of the reasons why we really got to focus on teaching ourselves and our kids how to cope, or they're just going to learn from their immediate environment, which may or may not be healthy. And kind of like the social media thing is, well, why do we do it if it's bad? Same thing with self-harm. A lot of teenagers don't understand, like, why am I doing that? Why am I doing that if it's bad? Why am I hurting myself? They have a lot of shame. But the one thing I want to teach them is something I learned when I was writing my dissertation, which is called the social pain overlap, which was discovered in 2013. So we're still discovering really new cool stuff. So remember how I said a lot of our physical systems have been like co-opted by social selection to make us more social. Um, And we know that from our hormones to our stress, to all these things. One of the other systems that we found out in 2013 is co-opted is our pain system. So pain is like an... Think it, don't think of it like an organ or like a, a body part. Think of pain as like an alarm. That's all pain is. Pain is a fire alarm going off saying there is a fire. Something is hurt. You need to protect, you know, get somewhere safe. You need to have enough adrenaline and cortisol to get through the immediate situation. Um, your body, pain immediately puts your body in this protect and figure it out kind of state. So our pain system got occupied or overrun by by sociality. So now when we feel social pain, so that's I, I say something really awkward or stupid, or I get rejected, or I don't feel accepted, or I get made fun of, or I don't feel like I belong, or I don't connect well with people, like that's social pain is pain. It's a fire alarm system going off. It's the exact same fire alarm, same neural pathways as physical pain. And so what people who self-harm don't realize they're doing, and many cultures have a similar kind of system for different reasons. It's not for self-coping, but what many uh, people do is they create what's called acute physical pain. So if I can hurt myself physically uh, really quickly, uh, all of my pain will be that cut. All that social pain that I was feeling that didn't have a location, that didn't have a beginning, that didn't have an end, and I couldn't control pain, you can control the duration and the intensity of. But when it's social pain, it's really hard for you to control the duration and intensity. But when it's a wound, I can control the duration, I can control the intensity, I can handle that pain, and all of my social pain goes away. So I tell kids, wow, you figured out this like ancient system, and you beat it, you hacked it. Now, self-harm is not the healthiest way to do that. So let's figure out some other ways of coping. But that's what you're doing. You're trying to get rid of your social pain. And people, adults do that through um, tattooing, uh, BDSM and pain. Um, Over-exercise is a way to like experience pain in a way that like feels good and gets rid of that social pain. So that is just one of those things where 
you know, um, we're kind of addicted to how do I, how do I get rid of this, this social pain and physical pain is one of the quick routes to do that. Again, health, there's healthier ways and unhealthier ways, but just knowing that helps a lot of people understand why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. And I think we've all heard of all of those issues and those illnesses before, but I've never really heard it broken down from a why people, you know, resort to those things. So that was very insightful. As a parent moving forward with raising your kid, how are you going to educate them on those social needs and those healthy coping mechanisms? So I I need to start doing it. Like she's only 12 and her friends are all kind of struggling with mental health. And so we've had a lot of really good talks, but I haven't like, like directly, like I'm going to teach you a lesson, but that would be such a smart thing. Or even writing like a coping book for teens and parents, Mm -hmm. that would be huge. So I definitely try to teach her all of this stuff. The other thing I think parents can do and people can do is create rituals. So why rituals are so important is routines are what keeps things the same and rituals are what makes things different. So in a society, day-to-day routines, whether that's going to church or going to work or going, you know, family routines, that's what keeps the system moving. If all of a sudden you're not going to work or not going, like things start to slow down in a system. If everyone stops going to church, now the system doesn't work. So routine keeps the system going, keeps what's regular going, but ritual allows us to change. And so as we don't have ritual in our society, I think we're not able, if you think of it like a snake molting its skin, because it's too tight, needs to get rid of that identity, needs to get rid of all that to become a new person. Well, humans need that too. And, you know, if we don't have those rituals that allow us to change and kind of emerge a new person and be treated with different responsibilities and different kind of uh, uh, view of who we are in life, like we are when we graduate or when we get married, those are some of the rituals we have in the U.S. And one of the reasons people do those and why they take them such a big deal is now I'm a different person. Now I'm treated differently in my family and I'm treated differently by society. And kids need that too. So my daughter Eden and I have a bunch of rituals we do on different birthdays. So I'll just tell you one of them we're doing. So for her 16th birthday, like I always do the research, right? And I'm like, okay, so kids get in accidents when they drive because they don't have enough experience. So what we're doing to get her driving experience at 16 is I'm like, you can go anywhere in the world that we can drive to. I don't care if it's Mexico, Alaska, like wherever you want to go. And we're going to do a big road trip, you and mom, and you're going to drive the whole way. Wow. And I'm right next to you and you're never going to forget it. And it's going to be bonding. And what, but after that, like she'll feel so much more confident as a driver. And that's the change I want her to make is from, I don't know how to drive to like, I got this. And I want to do that in a weekend. So those are the types of rituals that we can start foreseeing for ourselves and other people, which is what change do I want to make? How do I want to be seen? How do I want to be? What what growth do I want to make? What do I want to get rid of? And then how do I create a ritual with the people in my life that are witnesses to that change and are going to like treat and see me in a different way and like help me make that change? And how do I do it? And so it is effective. Could you give your definition of what a ritual is? Sure. Um, a ritual always has three parts, just statistically and scientifically. So a ritual always has what's called a separation. That's the first part. So we can do a separation by isolating, um, you know, certain rituals. You know, if I'm doing ayahuasca, I'm going to like a certain place that I can't leave for 24 hours. Often it's uh, clothing. So at graduation, you're separating yourself from everyone else by wearing the gown. At a marriage, you're separating yourself from everyone else by wearing, you know, the white dress. At different rituals, 
you have to wear certain things, whether you're a Freemason or a Mormon temple or a Judaic uh, ritual, right? Uh, you have to separate yourselves from, from daily life in some way. So that's the first thing. In order for it to be a ritual, it has to be different than what you're doing every single day. So something that would separate it, time, space, clothing, um, attitude, and what why that's important is, to, again, to get out of routine, you have to change. So something has to change in order for you to change. So this is something I bring to big business businesses a lot when I do their rebrands. So we do a ton of research. We figure out how they really stand out in their market, the industry, the competitive landscape, and we come up with this beautiful brand that's like placebo stack to have an emotional effect and all this stuff. If we launch that brand, it's not going to work until I tell the company, you have to do a major change. You have to paint. You have to you know, have new outfits. You have to have a new org structure. You have to move buildings. Like there has to be some major behavioral change for your employees or when they show up the next day, they will keep the same behaviors. And so that's why that first step of ritual is so important is we've got to separate it out from daily life and we've got to take it more seriously. We've got to change the way we think. We've got to open our worldview. And until we do that, no change will happen. So that's why that separation thing is important. The middle part of a ritual, what happens in the middle, we call it betwixt and in between or the liminal stage. But that's really when we kind of have kind of that metamorphosis or the, the come to Jesus moment, whether that's we forgive something that we haven't forgiven. We let go of something that we haven't let go of. We grow up and we take responsibility for something we haven't taken responsibility for. We decide to move forward in a different way. So whatever that ritual is, and again, every ritual is different, but the middle part is doing something physical that is basically transitioning you from one place to another. So let's say in a wedding, that is the I do moment. It's called performative efficacy in anthropological terms. And what it is, is before that moment, you aren't married after that moment you are. And so that middle moment is when you when you commit in front of everyone, I do. That's that moment when you change from before and after. And so every ritual kind of has one of those moments. In ayahuasca, it's like your experience after you barf and before you kind of, uh, you know, while you're processing the medicine and what you're learning during that period. You're not yourself before and you're not yourself after yet. You're just in this middle state. And then the third and final step to any ritual is what we call integration. So it's taking everything you learned, you've separated yourself, you've made a new commitment, and now you're integrating that back into your daily life. But you're doing it in such a way that you're not going to back to who you were before. And so every ritual on the face of the planet has these three things, ultimately, as you can break it down. Oh, we hate to cut our time in half, but this conversation is so good, so juicy that we wanted you to stay invested in the entire conversation the whole time. So come back next week. We'll have part two with Dr. Chelsea Shields, and we're going to be talking about friendship and the other half of our social wellness conversation. It's so good. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 